Hi, my name is Andy Day. I'm the founder and CEO of Capital A, and welcome to MA QA. Today we have Felix Velarde, uh, also investor, startup, and agency expert, business mentor, chairman, the list goes on. Felix is also CEO of 2Y3X, a consultancy program for agency owners to help them accelerate their growth and their valuation prior to exiting. Felix is also a non-exec and a board advisor to several agencies and startups, as well as a Burning Man regular. Uh, he sold his first agency in the 90s, which is quite a while ago now, uh, and closed another spectacular deal where he, where he rolled up 12 agencies from a choice of 100, I believe. We'll talk about that in more detail later. He's helped other agencies get eight times and 12 times EBITDA for their exits, so a very useful person to know. And I wanted to bring Felix in today, as he can help us understand a little bit more about what it takes to find an agency that's a good fit when we're looking for acquisitions, and also what you need to do to build up value, get yourself to the point that you can step away and exit the business that you're thinking of acquiring today. So Felix, how are you doing? I'm very good, thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here and nice to meet you all. So we're going to kick off with a quick background check, as we always do, Felix. Can you tell us a little bit more about how you got into this whole marketing and tech world? And also maybe a little bit about that first agency deal all the way back in the 90s. So I never really had a job that I could I, I wasn't fired from, actually. <laughs> Truth of it. Because I, was, I, was, I, I had blue hair and I was... Sparky, let's say. So, and then I fell in love with the internet and in the very late 80s, got involved selling ad- advertising space on something called Prestel, which was a kind of walled garden version of the World Wide Web, way before the World Wide Web. World Wide Web got switched on in 1993, by which point I was sort of casting around for something new to do. And I decided to start a multimedia agency, which very quickly became a web design company and one of the first web design companies in the world, Hyper Interactive. I sold that to my business partner because he and I had finished our journey together, I think is a polite euphemism. And I opened a a new agency called Headney Media, which very quickly became the world's most awarded digital agency. And we got pursued by all of the big networks. And because we were highly creative, we decided to sell to Lowe, which at the time was the world's fourth largest network and the world's most awarded advertising group. So it seemed like a perfect match. And then we did the deal. We sold on a multiple of 12, which was fantastic. And then Culture Clash and Horribleness and then eventually .com bust, which knocked everybody flat, including us. So I went bust. (laughs) In the meantime, I'd started the world's first SEO agency and one of the first couple of uh, interactive TV agencies. And I was always slightly ahead of the curve and watched as other people made more money than I did by spending more money and coming in later. And then in 2001, I started the world's first ECRM agency, stole all of mailing funds, ideas from CRM principles and uh, her work at Oracle. And... Thankfully, she and I are now really, really good friends. We've been working together for the last five years, but I did nick all of her best ideas. <laughs> and then, yeah, I mean, I ended up running a group and giving it all up in the end of 2014. I decided I'd had enough. 
sold everything, got rid of everything, took a year off, and then um, spent a year going to festivals, which was fabulous. Which includes Burning Man, I guess. So. Yeah, it did. So I'm now a, one of the crew for Sharky's Bar and Lounge on the Playa, which is uh, Burning Man, a uh, big free cocktail bar. Operate seven days of the festival, just giving away cocktails, which is fun. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, that's the, the nature of Burning Man's giving everything away, isn't it? Pretty much. Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to that deal that you kind of skipped through there very quickly. Mm. Uh, obviously, that first sale that you made gave you a bit mm. of a, a taste for something bigger. Oh, yeah. And you, when we were doing the research for this, you, you told me about these 12 agencies that you rolled up. Mm. And you mentioned that there was a choice of 100. Can you tell us a little bit more about how that... Yeah, um, I, I was... I was approached by, and this is, this is, so we're talking about 2011-ish, I think, 2010 or 11. And I, I'd, had, I'd, I'd already had a long career, so 17 years of founding, running agencies and either selling them for a lot of money or selling them to get them out of trouble. And so I've, I've done, you know, I've made every mistake that you can possibly make running an agency. I have cocked up more companies than any of you are going to do, I hope. Um, but I've also had one or two uh, really good successes. And along the way, I got approached by Mark Adams, who was the original founder of Next15. And at the time, it, it, the original, when he founded it, it was called Text100, became the Next15 group, which is now one of my clients today. And he came to me and said, listen, we need a, a new CEO, an outgoing CEO, who's amazing, also another co-founder of uh, Text 100. And so I was kind of flattered. And so I joined as CEO of the Conversation Group, and we decided to put together some agencies and see what happened. And at the time, my expertise was CRM strategy and digital strategy at a very, very high level. I'd worked for most of the world's top brands and had a, a fine old time of it. And I decided that what we wanted to do was the sort of multi-channel CRM type offering. And I'd been involved in a book on multi-channel ecosystems. So I went out looking for agencies to, for us to acquire. And I actually met a hundred different agencies. Some of them even twice. Over the course of about six months, I did a, I, I went and met at least one, mostly two agency owners a day across the course of six months. And it was fascinating. My God, it was fascinating. And most of them were kind of like me. They, they, they'd sort of, they started an agency because they'd had an opportunity to do so and had built it through chutzpah and hard work and you know, brain power and, you know, a little bit of charisma and all of that kind of stuff and some luck, but didn't really know how to run businesses. And by this stage, I'd made so many mistakes. I was starting to, to really understand the business, running a business is very different to the business of an agency, which usually is either to do the best creative work that you can or to revolutionize marketing or to take these on the step or to change the world, all of which is very different to running a business. So I, I went and met all these amazing people in a variety of different disciplines. We decided that we'd pick one from each discipline. So we had a research company, a PR agency, and a CRM agency, which happened I happened to own. And it was brilliant, advertising. And going out and meeting all of these people gave me this amazing perspective of different kinds of owner who are 
frankly, all pretty much in the same boat of learning as they went along. And you had to meet those all in person. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> it gave me an excuse to get memberships to the Groucho Club and places like that. So yeah, of course. I thought I'd seen you somewhere before. <laughs> Okay, so you met those and then you rolled those 12 up. What, what was the nature of the deals that you did with those guys? Were you making like 100% acquisitions or was there, was there some kind of... We, we, did a, we did a ratcheted share swap on the basis... So uh, I'm very progressive. I always have been. When I say progressive, I'm, you know, it's very easy to do the sort of acquisitions by saying, okay, we'll pay you three times your average net profit over the next three years, and therefore it won't cost us anything apart from legal fees, which is a great way of doing it, by the way. But I quite like things where people feel like they've got a stake, and I'm not really interested in the one of the big problems with doing those three times net profit over three, average net profit over three, three years deals is that everybody's focused on their own P&L, and so you don't get any collaboration whatsoever. In fact, you get warfare. And that's fine if you're a big group like WPP where you can ride it out and you just wait to see who survives because you know that one in N is going to survive and thrive. But when you're a small group, you can't afford to do that. And and for me, I like doing deals which are win-win deals. So we basically said to the companies that we folded in that if we bought them at a multiple of three or four or whatever the multiple was based on their size, we would be able to aggregate all of them and we'd be able to sell ourselves at a multiple of 12 or 15. Or, you know, if one day by some miracle we went to the market, you'd be talking about a, a, a 30 multiple. And so we said we'd split the difference. So we did share swap deal where the contractual split the difference thing so that everybody wins out of them collaborating rather than focusing on their own PLs. So and what was the draw for them, Felix? What was the draw for them coming in? Obviously, there was an, an end goal to that because everybody yeah. would get out a better multiple than they could get yeah. on their own. But what was, what was the carrot to get them into the group? Uh, really, it was... It, it, I, don't, I don't know what stage you guys are all at, but agencies grow in, in sort of spurts. They go, go, go up in from plateau to plateau. And... At each plateau, basically what happens is you grow through, you know, sort of the first plateau is a million quid, right? You grow to a million and you do that on force of personality and salespersonship, right? You get to two million because you've now assembled a, a good team around you. You get to three and a half million because you're starting to learn how to run a business. And then suddenly you realize that you've got to reformat your business in order to put in management structures and timesheets and shit like that in order to get to your five, six, seven million, right? And then you've got another change that happens at 6 million, another one at 10, another 15. So I'd, I'd, I'd realized that I'd spotted that this was a, a factor. And so all of the companies that I spoke to, I was trying to identify which ones had hit a ceiling and couldn't get past that ceiling because I knew I could get them past that ceiling. And so the, the convincer really was, join the group. I will put in place the program that will give you a framework, will bring your team in, you will engage your superstars, will push you through this program over the course of two years. In that time, you're likely to double your revenue. And by the end of that, you'll have the choice as the owner to either leave or stick with the deal. But 
in the meantime, we'll have taken you past that, that growth barrier and, it, uh, and working will be fun again. And a lot of that, it was about the choice of the people that we got. So fundamental to all of this was us knowing what our core values was, the personal values. I don't mean the shit you see on people's websites. I mean, personal, personal values. And they're very specific, okay? And they're usually sort of things that got embedded when you were seven or 11, and they're never going to change. So we wanted to identify that first. And then the people that we picked to try and persuade to come into the group and join this scheme were people who shared those personal core values. So we did a lot of work on who the people were as people because we knew that it was going to be bloody hard work. You know, I, by this stage, I'd already done several deals. But I'd done a couple of big earnouts, and I knew how horrible they are. I mean, they are genuinely, if you're an entrepreneur, you sell to somebody else, suddenly you've got a boss, for the, in my case, for the very first time. And it's hell. So you're not used to it, yeah? Somebody's sitting there saying to you, um, can you justify why you spent, you know, three grand uh, nipping off to can? It's like... Because it's my company and I can see the value in it. Yeah, no, 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 justify it to me on the spreadsheet. That is galling, I have to say, and causes instant anger. And so when you're acquiring companies, that's a big factor. And so a lot of the argument for, for doing it this way was about find people who share your values because then you can all get through the tough times because you all relate to each other. When I say share values, I don't mean educational values or background or cultural values. I mean things like my values are honour and empathy, okay? Those are the two things that I strive to adhere to. Everybody in my organisation in 2Y3X shares those values. Okay, so something I get from that, and it's something we talk about a lot as well, is, is really it's about starting with a big enough pool for you to have drilled down to get those final 12 and all mm. the legwork you did really paid off and it sounds like you probably ended up being a, a great psychologist at the end of that as well I should imagine I, I wouldn't say that but you do spot patterns yeah and you know it's, it's, it, one of the interesting things is you're largely dealing with very smart people and most people who, who start companies and are successful at them are very smart. It doesn't matter whether you're IQ smart or EQ smart or street smart, but, but somewhere in there, there's, there's a spark of tenacity and resilience and imagination and creativity and the ability to corral people around you, right? And so that makes it a joy to deal with. Now, I have to say that by, by this point in my agency career, because I still had Underwired, and Underwired at the time was the leading CRM strategy company. And so I was, at the same time, I was, CEO of the conversation group, I also still owned uh, Underwired. And so I brought in a managing director and a new head of client services to come in and run the company for me. And I spent a hell of a lot of time doing, working with uh, an amazing woman called Julia Perry uh, at, at UI Impact, um, uh, who's uh, a psychometric, a psych, I don't know what the word is, psychometricist. Um, uh, but she's brilliant. So she and I worked closely together when we were finding the MD for Underwired. And he was the ex-managing director from agency.com, uh, a guy called John Thieu. Uh, Really, really lovely, thoroughly decent 
uh, man. And he came in and ran, ran the agency so that I could spend all of my time doing the M&A thing. And one of the things that I'd caution to any of you that are thinking about going out and buying companies is that it's you're meeting new intelligent people who are in who, who are one step behind where you were. And so so it's a great, it's great fun. And it's really, really seductive and it will pull you in. And the the company that you're supposed to be running will suddenly have a vacuum. And I've seen it happen time and time again. Is you get swept up in this MA thing because deal making is awesome, meeting new people is awesome, learning is awesome. That so your company then takes uh, a hit behind you. So that I think that the really the good thing that I did at that point, I mean, having had so many sort of such a mixed bag up until that point of successes and monumental failures, you know, I really did cut things up. Um, it, it, uh, the learning from that was find a brilliant management team, figure out the frameworks that they're going to use to run the business in the way that you want it uh, to be run, figure out how you're going to maintain, carry on holding their feet to the flames so that you can then go off on holiday for six months meeting prospective business partners because they are business partners. Mm. These are the, these are your group's future, right? You are going to be handing over to them at some point, whether it's in five or 10 years time, or, you know, as quick as you can, you're going to be handing over to the people you recruit now. And like anything else, you've, you, you must only um, do deals with superstars. Yeah. It's like employees. You don't want to employ B players just because it makes you feel great um, to be cleverer than them. You need to hire people who are much better at than you are so that you can be liberated so that you can do the stuff that you really want to do. And your, would you call it a course, a program? It comes very, very highly regarded. Um, some very senior people that I know in agency world recommend it. So what are some of the things that you're teaching your clients that are on that program? I mean, it sounds like, it almost sounds like you're able to go in to the matrix the agency matrix and mm. change things up and and get these results for for the agencies that you work for, but also you're doing that for your clients as well. And like you say, that you're helping them exit as well for for silly multiple. Yeah, yeah. Really, what's the sort of thesis behind the two Y three X? Well, can you explain the name first? Two Y three X came from uh, it's two years, three times revenue. Right. Because I, I I kept getting it, I kept hitting those numbers, and I just it, right. I spent my entire agency career trying to trying to find a way of of creating a boxed product, yeah, that people would go, oh, I want one of those, and be able to pick it off the shelf. And, and finally, two Y three X became that boxed product after I'd quit my agency career. But it's 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 a framework. So we go in, we do one day a month with our clients for the whole of the two years, and it's really really simple. It's we start with creating the long-term strategy, a three-year strategy. So we start at the end and we say, okay, applying Edwin Locke's goal-setting theory, your goal, you think that your goal is, is 10 million revenue and therefore 2 million EBIT. We're going to say, we're going to say stuff that, well, let's make it 15, let's make it interesting. Goal-setting theory basically says thus the higher and harder the goal, the more likely you are to put together a plan to get it get to it and if you if you include your superstars then they'll figure it out too and then you'll get there 
And one of the reasons that agencies sort of paupers or feast and famine is because they have a 10 or 20% growth, annual growth thing. If you make that 70%, then you're really going to have to think about it. And so that we use that as the basis of how we hit our outrageous growth goals. So we start with that three years. We work out what's going on in year three in order to be able to attain those goals. You know, if you want to leave in the third, by the end of the third year, well, guess what? You're going to need your senior management team running the business for you so that you can leave, right? And they need to have been doing that for at least a year, probably two years, because you'll spend the last year doing M&A. And you can only do that if somebody else is running the business. Oh, look, so, so you're starting to say, given my end goal, I'm now having to, start to, to plan ahead to get there. So you start at the end, you work your way backwards. And you break that down into five different sort of subject areas, people, clients, sales and marketing, business processes, and corporate and financial. And you work your way backwards until you come to this year. And usually, in order to get to year three, this year requires about 20 different tasks to be done. Change systemic changes to be done. One of those is going to be fire all of your C players. One of them is going to be put in place who the A method firing in order to hire just A players from here on in. Another one's going to be how to do you know job scorecards. Another one's going to be sort out your proposition. One's going to be sort out your workflow, timesheets, utilization, recovery. All of the, the, the all of the stuff that you know you ought to do, but nobody ever gets around to. And then we put that in the right order using this team by which point the team really understands why they're doing it and why they're doing it in that order. And then we, and if we've got a team of five people and we've got 20 tasks, that's one task per person per quarter. Great. And so our job as facilitators is to coach the team through each of these quarters. We break the quarters down into research prototype and implement. And our job is to hold their feet to the flames and also to hold the highest possible standard and to, to give people the, the, the right reading materials and research materials so that they can come up with the answer themselves that is the correct answer. And the only reason we know what the correct answer is is because, in truth, it's because I've screwed up so many times and all my colleagues have screwed up so many times that we know what not to do and anything left is the right answer. And then we've all applied it and been right a few times. So it's, it, it kind of it works. But yeah, I mean, that's the methodology. The secret sauce is how you put the team together and how you motivate that team. Right. And what can you tell us about maximizing exit value? Because I know that's a big part Mm. of what you do. Any agency CEOs, especially these guys here, looking to make several acquisitions. Yeah. At the end of that, you know, everybody's goal pretty much is is looking to exit to a bigger agency. Yeah. So how do you do that? Once you've made the integration, what's, what's the, the key sort of part to maximizing? So there, there are two parts of it. One is every, so I've done a lot of due diligence, both for myself, but also I did the due diligence on Be Heard's acquisitions, as an example. And, and essentially you're scoring companies. See, they, there's, you, know, you, you start off with a, the, the maximum possible multiple for that size of agency or uh, of acquisition based on its EBIT. And then you discount the maximum possible multiple based on whether or not it's well managed, whether or not it's got retained clients and predictable income, whether its processes are sorted, whether its risks are sorted. You know, there's a whole bunch, there's a scorecard, right? So 
in order to maximize your revenue, your, your exit multiple, you need to nail every single discount factor. Okay, you need to have dealt with it and over, oversupplied it or overserviced it in a positive way. I mean, that's what the, the what two y three x does is you know one of the things one of the generators of it originally was prepping people for sale and uh, you know knowing why what people look for in acquisitions to say, do you know what I'll discount on that because there's nothing they can do about arguing against it because it's it introduces risk. If you haven't, for example, if you haven't got a risk register, then there are going to be risks in your business that I can stick in the warranties and stuff, but actually there's still risks. And I don't like risks as an acquirer. So all that kind of stuff. So is nail all of your 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 discount factors by going through a due diligence process on you or a program like 2Y3X or you know Andy and people like Andy do consulting on you know sort of tactical stuff that that buyers will look for as discounts and fix all that. Okay. Second thing is get your succession team absolutely right. Yeah. You are going to leave. The buyer knows that there is a 70% chance that you won't like being managed by somebody for the first time in 25 years and you will leave in three months' time. The last deal that I did when I sold Underwired, I was out seven weeks later. I did the deal very deliberately on the basis I wanted to get out. But we engineered it and the buyer knew and was pleased to get rid of me because I engineered it in that way. So that that that's a, a big consideration. Yeah, get your succession sorted out because I want to buy something that I know is going to run when you've run away. And then third and the most important bit is is strategic fit. Make yourself famous for one single thing that fits into a few buyers' requirements list. So when I sold Underwired, we were the best CRM strategy company, and we didn't do much execution. There were big companies that you can go to, email marketing companies and all that kind of stuff, that could be, but we were the best at strategy. And at the time, most of the groups were desperate for CRM strategy. So we made ourselves famous for that. Even though in our last year, we built a million quid's worth of websites for British land, we just never told anybody about it. Be laser focused about your proposition. So how does that apply to an agency that's made several acquisitions. So if you're making yourself famous for one thing, mm-hmm. would that be a vertical or would it... The conversation group was, its specific niche was, we were the only multi-channel CRM group. And we were able to do CRM in every single channel using every single uh, means that are disposed from advertising to. So it was all locked together. So you could do straightforward customer journey-based linear CRM, but you could do that across every single channel in an integrated way because we had every agency and every specialism believing the same thing. Right. So, you know, you do, you can't, just, just doing a generalist roll-up makes you a small generalist. And the only reason somebody will then uh, buy you is if they're not in this country and they don't have a small generalist in this country, right? Now, that's fine if your target audience, and you need to understand who is going to buy you and who you want to buy, buy you, yeah, when you're starting out. You need to figure out who is going to buy you and what is going to be in their heads when it comes to buying you and why you're the perfect fit. 
And sometimes that requires a bit of re-engineering at the last minute, but usually you can set it up. You know, if you've got some kind of prescience and you know what's coming up and what's going to be sexy in four or five years' time, then that's what you need to aim to do. And if you're going to build a, a small group, build around whatever you think that future looks like. Um, proposition, I mean, proposition is the one thing I still do myself, right? It's just that I love doing agency propositions, so I've got to think about it. And if you go to the website, you'll see loads of agency propositions that you've probably heard of before if you're an agency man. But it, it is about being single-minded, yeah? You can't just be a generalist in the hope that Coke is, phoning, is going to phone you up. Coke's not going to phone you up. Sorry. Yeah, Coke's going to phone the chairman of Ogilvy and say, by the way, can you do a 50 million quid campaign for me? Yeah, So you might as well be a specialist, right? And when you're doing acquisitions, do acquisitions that are nearest neighbour or rounding out this new service. You know, I was already doing CRM. I wanted to do multi-channel CRM because nobody else was doing it. I did the roll-up. We went out when the two first two clients that we won were Bauer Media for their multi-channel CRM program across everything, all of their radio stations and magazines and so on. The second one that we won was Tesco. Yeah, The board of Tesco, the world's greatest CRM company, hired the conversation group to redesign its multi-channel CRM strategy. And that was only because we built the thing so that we could go to people like Tesco and say, do you know what? We know what's next. So if when you're planning your acquisitions, it's firstly people, get the person right that you're buying, and the people that's their team, get that right, because you can't afford to get that wrong. But also it's got to fit with your vision of what the purpose of your group is. And if the only purpose of your group is to give yourselves a bigger exit, great. But put yourself in the mind of the buyer, figure out what they might be looking for. When I sold Underwired, we had uh, 16 suitors, nine offers, and three went down to the wire. And I did that deal seven weeks start to finish, and then seven weeks later, I was out in front of them. Wow, that's the dream. So I just got a couple couple more things, and then we'll open the, the, the floor for some more questions from the, the guys here. You also talk about board strategy, road, roadmaps. I'm guessing some of this is going to be in the book that's coming out, which we'll talk about in a mm -hmm. second. But, but just generally, what do you think about boards and building a board in general? Any advice around that? Right, so I, I chair agencies. My side gig, if you like. One of my many side gigs. Um, so I'm CEO of the 2Y3X programme. I do proposition development. I'm chairman of a bunch of agencies, and I work for People Centered Internet, which is Vince Cerf's um, organization for rolling out the internet in a sort of a, a, a people-oriented way. Being a chairman is really interesting because what you see is all the things that have gone before you. And so, you know, there are lots of companies. There are people like Cactus and Guider and all of that kind of stuff, and you know, Polymenster and what have you. And then they're, they're really interesting. Some of them are community-oriented. Some of them are sort of mastermind type group oriented and peer support. And if you're sub a million quid, then you'd go to Cactus, for example. And if you're sub one and a half million, you'd go to Robert Craven at Guider. Um, I think that when you're putting together, right, board is very, very different to management team. And that is very, very different to strategic change team. And 
I think a chair is, is incredibly useful for holding you to account. Yeah, because we all need to be held to account. Right? I, I, I consider myself to be extremely experienced as a chair and I'm really good at holding other people to account. And yet I have a personal trainer right, who every Monday morning on Zoom shouts at me for not having done as much exercise as I was supposed to. Right? And we all need somebody to hold us to account and to make sure that, that, that we think things through properly and so on. So having a chair or a non-exec like that is really good. Non-execs are coming in several different flavors, but most of them are passive advice on tap. And passive advice on tap is really nice. Somebody to bounce ideas off, somebody to phone at 10 o'clock in the evening when your planning director's quit, somebody to nurse you through M&A maybe and make some introductions. That's nice, it's passive, it's cheap. A really good chairperson is going to really represent you in the market and make waves. And if you're pro properly doing a group and you're thinking about sort of aim listing or something like that, a chair is invaluable because they'll bring real buckets of proper experience if you hire the right one. And then there are programs like mine, which are, which are you know, they're not about the senior team or the board. They're just about the superstars in the business and how you, how you grow the business. In terms of boards, and I've never really been fixated on them. You know, it's, it's, it's the owners and a, a finance person reporting into it and maybe a non-exec making sure everybody's being honest. But I don't, I don't think that they have much value particularly. Senior management teams, likewise, tend to be there either through peace principle, as in they've been promoted to the level of their own incompetence, or they're custodians because they're really good managers. And senior management team, usually a conservative and change resistant. And if you want to, if you re genuinely want to grow fast and hard, you need people who are open to change and innovation and breaking things. So usually that comes from the superstars in the business, not from the senior team. So I prefer working with uh, the way that our program works is we, we find the future in the agency. You know, there's usually a 22-year-old who you know is just going to run their own thing at some point. And, you know, and so representatives from across the business, because that way you get innovation and real change and you get the whole of the business buying into the process. So that's quite important. Yeah, I'm not sure if that answered your question. It was long-winded. Yeah, I think it does. So thank you so much for that, Felix. I'm sure everybody's got a load of questions now. I know there's one person who's going to ask a question. So open the floor. Do we have any questions from the room? Yeah. Hi there, Felix. Thanks very much. That was really interesting. Thank um, you. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned mitigating discount factors. You said, yes. you know, clear, clear the discount factors and people can't knock you down on the price. Obviously, there's going to be multiple, but what would you say are the, the sort of the two or three biggest, the highest impact discount yeah. factors? Just to qualify my answer slightly, this isn't really just about them being able to knock you down on price. It's also about you being a company that is fit and singing and you know fantastically well run so you know if you get yourself into that position you suddenly you become so sexy to buyers right so it, it's got lots of different ramifications here biggest ones are succession team predictable in, income or at least the ability to accurately predict what is going to happen yeah so a, a 
consistency in your ability to forecast what's going to happen with your business, even if you don't have retained income. Yeah, because that foresight is what they're buying. They're buying future profits, not buying past profits. But yeah, succession team and governance systems. So, you know, things like the strategy map and the roadmap systems that we use are brilliant because they show that you've got a plan for the future. And I want to know that I'm not going to have to step in as a buyer and rescue you. I, I want to know that you're, you've already got plans for the future. And that all I'm going to do is give you additional opportunity because that would be dream, wouldn't it? That would be fantastic from a buyer's point of view. So that's exactly what you want to do. And it gives that uh, sense that you actually know what you're doing. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Okay. Uh, do we have another question? I'll go for one, please. Thanks, Felix. That was great. Really interesting. I was interested in what you were talking about when you were talking about deal structures and mm. There's obviously, you found you know, numerous different ways of doing this. And I also sort of note that you said you made a lot of mistakes along the way. Now, obviously, when it comes to good that deal structure, it's sort of the area where you don't want to make that mistake. And I'm wondering, where, where do you turn to for that kind of inspiration or advice on, on knowing, I guess, what is possible, what is workable, and that just general creativity and imagination on, on how you can make a deal work and retain people, earnouts, and so on and so forth? Well, I think part of it comes from, I hate to say this, but part of it is, comes from that trial and error learning by experience, right? The, the, I did the classic inter-public earn-out deal. I completely get, you know, it was very obvious to me as I was walking into that, how it worked. What wasn't obvious to me was the culture clash that was going to happen on the other side of the deal. From a mechanical point of view, the classic ways that the big four do deals is brilliant if you're a giant. Yeah? But if you look now at what S4 is doing, they're doing deals in a much, much different way to the way that WPP you know, pioneered, actually, which are much more collaborative, much more about shared futures and not so much about siloed P&Ls and competing P&Ls. So you know, have a look around at the kinds of deals that are being done. Go and make friends with Paul Winterflood at Kingston Smith and you know, buy Andy four lunches in a row and go meet Joe Evans at, at Lewis Silkin and, you know, whoever else you can find and find out what they've done. The other thing is there are any number of people like you who've done it once before. Go and lunch them. That's what I did. I went for coffees with everybody to find out how it worked. Mm -hmm. In the same way that when I became a non-exec, the first thing I did was... I went out and had coffee or beer with every non-exec I could find so that I could figure out what it was all about. And very quickly came to the conclusion that the only way I was going to differentiate myself was by being able to deliver a, on a promise. You know, I guarantee what I do now. I don't think anybody else in my field does. But that's because I wanted to find a point of difference. So, but I only learned that by seeing what everybody else did and making friends. And a lot of those people are still friends. We're fellow travellers and sometimes competitors, but you know what? We've all got our own ways of doing it. But that's the way that you're going to find out. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Any more questions? Well, I, well definitely one more then, just if, you don't, if you've got the time. Um, I think I was interested in what you talked about, personal values and core values. And, and obviously you, you described that process of 
um, of how, it, well, obviously your own personal ones of honor and, and empathy. And just wondering just about the kind of mechanics of that. I understand completely where you're going from and the value of it, but how would you, might you recommend that you might just conduct that process, particularly going into an M&A process, you know, where you've got to sort of speed that. So it's a two-hour process. There is a formula for it in very, very simple terms. You get everybody in a room. Uh, and actually, I've been doing this on Zoom for the last year, uh, very successfully, actually. But you get everybody in the team in a room and you impress on everybody that this is personal. It's not It's not your, the customer comes first because that's not core value of anything, right? This is, I'm never going to abandon you because I was abandoned when I was seven. Right, this that is this kind of level, and so we talk about that a lot. And we say this is personal. Don't think about anybody else. Think about you. And then we start writing down what people come up with, and usually thirty or forty words will come from a group of four or five people. Then we do a blind uh, sort of triage of, of those words. We unpack the words that we don't really understand. Somebody will always say integrity. Right? Darth Vader, who's Luke Skywalker earlier? Um, uh, yeah, Darth Vader had integrity until the third movie, right? So integrity means different things to different people. Honesty, what? Always? What, to your clients? Really? You know, so you need to unpack these things and really get to the deep, deep meanings of these things. And what you, I mean, universally, what you'll find is if you get on, if they've got a team already, if you spend some time uh, working with somebody, then you already share values. It's just that you've never, they've never been made explicit. This makes them all explicit. Then you triage that, that list of 30 or 40 words or phrases down to maybe four or five. And then that, those become the, do we all agree on these? And, and yes, uh, because you've all done it collectively, that's, that's how you get there. That then becomes your hiring. You know, it's one of your scorecards. Do you meet all five of these words? If you meet four out of five and the other one is integrity, uh, truthfulness, then you're not going to get hired. And it makes the hiring process a bit more of a, a pain in the ass, but you're absolutely guaranteed to get people who share your values. You know, most of us hate working with clients who don't share our values. Most of us love working with clients who do share our values. Most, will, most of us will sell to somebody that share our values and we'll buy people who share our values and those will be good deals. And if they're not, it's because we don't share values. The C players that you have in your businesses, of course, none of you do, but um, if you did, they're people who aren't necessarily just shit at their job. They're just people who don't share the rest of the team's values. And when they move somewhere else, they're likely to become A players somewhere else. You know, so uh, values for me are fundamentally important. It's, usually it's a two-hour exercise uh, we do it as the first stage of proposition development as it happens, um, which is a two-day process. Um, but that's always the very first step that we take when we do proposition development. It's one of the first workshops that we do when we do the 2Y3X program, when, people, when we're onboarding new, new companies into the program. So um, if, if I say to you core values, deepest, 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 red line core values, what are the first two words that come to mind? Well, I, I, I've done this process quite a lot with in a corporate way. So in a way, I find it slightly easier to answer in that sense than I do me personally. But I think they are tend to be broadly the same. I, I value taking action extremely highly. Okay. So that idea of sort of being proactive, of, of delivering dependability, yeah. those are, you know, that this idea of um, 
yes, stop and think, but don't think and stop kind of thing is a, is a pretty big one for me. Interesting. Dependability, you said. Uh, well, yes, I suppose that, yes, I guess that the, the, the ability to depend on someone is going to act, I guess, would probably be how I see that. That's really interesting. Yeah. Like Robustness as well. Okay. So, so clearly Freud is alive and well, sitting on one of your, in one of your books behind you. I'm going to stop there. But, but you can see that I asked for the first value that would come to his head and unconsciously, he actually told me something that I would now spend probably 10 or 15 minutes exploring with you and with other people in the team to find out what you really meant by dependability and reliability. And is that about constants or is it about trustworthiness? Is it about not letting people down? Where does that fit and all of that kind of stuff, even though you actually said something completely different. So that's how you find out. And it took, what, three seconds and all I had to do was ask your permission. So it's not actually that difficult to find out what people's real values are. One qualifier to that is when you're doing any kind of deal, whether you're hiring somebody or doing a, an acquisition, references to check. The first person I uh, almost made an offer to to become a 2Y3X consultant, what, 18 months ago? When I checked his references, the first thing somebody said was, he hired us and engaged us and gave us a brief, even though he knew he wouldn't be able to pay us. It was like, ah, oh, thank you. So you do need to check references because sometimes you get blindsided by people's charisma or the color of their eyes or whatever it is, right? And references are a very, very good way of, of just checking. Thank you very much, Felix. I'll, I'll copy those details, as I said, into, into our uh, members area. Uh, and below the video. Fantastic. Um, and now, because I'm the host, if I press end, it ends it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, leave. We'll, we'll force everybody to leave, which is fine because I think we can end the recording now. So thank you very much.